with our study through the book of Acts. Uh, today we'll be focusing on Acts 20, chapter 20, verses 1 to 21. Uh, the verses that we are looking at take place during Paul's third missionary journey. And a big part of that journey was three years that he spent in the city of Ephesus. As was his custom, Paul's ministry began in the Jewish synagogue. And after sharing the word with those in the Jewish synagogue there in Ephesus uh, for three months, a number of them believed, but many others became hardened against the truth uh, to the point that they were speaking evil of the gospel to others. Well, at that point, Paul led the believers within the synagogue to officially withdraw from the synagogue and actually began a local church, and they met in a lecture hall. That enabled Paul to actually share about the kingdom of God, to share the word of the Lord on a daily basis. But the Lord really blessed Paul's ministry to the point that in the province of Asia, we are told that everybody in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. The Lord was performing extraordinary miracles through Paul. Uh, people were being healed of diseases. People who were possessed, were, uh, were, uh, possessed by, by demons were being delivered in just miraculous ways. Uh, we're told a story of uh, some traveling Jewish exorcists who tried to imitate Paul's ministry to those who were oppressed by evil spirits, and they failed so miserably that the evil spirit through the man that he was possessing actually beat up the seven exorcists so badly they had to run out of the house to escape. Well, God was working in such mighty ways in Ephesus that the fear of the Lord fell on everyone who was there, Jews and Greeks alike. The Lord worked in very powerful and very personal ways because there were many who who believed, who came to understand that their magic books that they held, that they owned, that were connected with divination and sorcery and stuff, very expensive books, they believed that this was sin. They understood this, and they actually burned them. I mean, extremely expensive books. Just an amazing work of the Lord there in Ephesus. But not everybody was happy with it. Um, Demetrius, who was a silversmith, actually began to express concern. He gathered the other tradesmen together and warned them about what was happening. I mean, the one thing that united all the Ephesians was the worship of Artemis. She was the, the patron goddess of their city. The temple of Artemis was a magnificent structure. Uh, it was known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And really, this whole thing is an excellent, though tragic, example of uh, Henry Van Til's statement, we'll get this last week, that culture is religion externalized. Culture is religion externalized. So everything about the Ephesian culture was a product of their worship of the pagan idol. The worship of the goddess Artemis dominated their economy. That's what especially got Demetrius and the other tradesmen's attention. It seems that the main part of their business was building, making various kinds of shrines, charms, uh, various things connected to the city for the citizens as well as the many who would visit the city to, to actually worship there at the temple. So therefore, so if you threaten the religion of the culture, in many ways you're threatening the economy of the culture. We also see that the worship of Artemis demanded the full allegiance of all the citizens they had a common confession that they would all say together, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And there, there was one case where this says they were repeated that for two hours nonstop. 
great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Well, Demetrius' concerns, he spread and people began, uh, began to kind of galvanize together uh, as far as in protest of, uh, of what was going on uh, as far as the gospel was concerned. And we can see that it wasn't just a matter of having like a calm, reasoned discussion about this. They were mad. It says they were in a rage at what was happening. So when the culture's idol is threatened, people often respond in hostile and aggressive ways when their idol is threatened. According to Van Til's definition, every culture worships something. And the object of their worship determines what their culture is like, determines what the culture values. The idol determines what they deem to be moral versus what is immoral. The idol determines what they would see is of the highest priority for them. The idol determines what they would consider to be true versus what they would consider to be false. Well, you can see this clearly in this episode from Ephesus, but you can also see it clearly in our own nation. We talked about this some last week. I'm going to mention this again this week because it really ties into what we're talking about. Is I believe one of the most, maybe the most prominent idol in American culture is the idol of what I would call personal identity, identifying just according to what you see of yourself in your heart. It's very much man-centered. Even more specifically, it's very individual, person centered. Each individual is told they need to be free to be who they really are in their innermost self. They're the only ones who can determine that. And that freedom to follow their heart is, especially now, oftentimes expressed in sexual ways. And of course, this whole month is designated to express worship to that idol. Businesses, educational institutions, sports teams, the entertainment industry, social media, all are lined up to join the worship of this idol of the American culture. And if one fails to join in the worship, they may find themselves the object of rage and hostility. All are expected to believe the things that are claimed as part of this worship, that a man really can be a woman if that's what he chooses to be. A woman can really be a man if that's what she chooses to be. Same-sex attraction is to be fully embraced. And tragically, these are very, very real temptations that people deal with. I mean, just tragic, deep temptations. But instead of coming alongside to help a person deal with those struggles and those temptations, they're encouraged to embrace the temptation as their actual sexual orientation. And these claims that people make are considered undeniable truths. Well, Ephesus had an undeniable truth, too, connected with their idol. They believed that the Artemis image fell from heaven. Well, in verse 36 of chapter 19, they describe that as an undeniable truth. We all know that's true. We all know it wasn't true. It was mythology. That event took place nearly 2,000 years ago in Ephesus, but the truth that all culture is religion externalized is just as evident in our day as it was in theirs. It's also important to notice that the one thing that powerfully confronted this blatant idolatry was the gospel. That's the one thing that confronted. That's why they were so upset, because they were being confronted directly with this. The gospel reminds us that we are all sinners, 
Every one of us deals with the temptation of having idols in our lives, things that are more important to us than God. Sin wants us to be fully and wholly committed to those sinful temptations that we deal with, to be, to be enslaved to those temptations. And our failure to deal with those temptations reveals the sin that actually is in our heart. Well, that sin tells us that we need a Savior. That sin tells us that we've offended our Creator. And that sin tells us that we deserve wrath. We deserve condemnation from our God. But, of course, Christ Jesus, and this is the gospel, the good news, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He suffered the wrath of God for our sin on the cross. He paid for our sins. Therefore, he purchased our forgiveness. So when we receive Jesus Christ as Savior, we're also receiving him as Lord. Embracing a personal idol or an accepted cultural idol is not an option for Christians. So the gospel is a direct attack on all sin and idolatry. Well, Acts 19 ends with the threat of a riot being averted, and that's actually where Acts 20 picks up. So we're going to be looking at 21 verses in Acts 20, so let me go ahead and read those for you. After the uproar had ceased... Paul sent for the disciples, and when he had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he left to go to Macedonia. When he had gone through those districts and had given them much exhortation, he came to Greece, and there he spent three months. And when a plot was formed against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And he was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, and by Aristarchus, and Secundus of the Thessalonians, Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. But these had gone on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. We sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came to them at Troas within five days, and there we stayed seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together, and there was a young man named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep. And as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep and fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. But Paul went down, fell upon him, and after embracing him, he said, Do not be troubled, for his life is in him. When he had gone back up and had broken the bread and eaten, he talked with them a long while until daybreak. And then left. They took away the boy alive and were greatly comforted. But we going ahead to the ship set sail for Asos, intending from there to take Paul on board, for so he had arranged it, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Asos, he took us. He, we took him on board and came to Middleton. Sailing from there, we arrived the next following day opposite Chaos. Chaos. And the next morning we crossed over to Samos, and the day following to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. From Miletus he sent to to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time. Serving Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, 
solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is quite an involved passage, as you can see. It speaks much of Paul's travels from place to place. As part of this third missionary journey, we read of men who were alongside him at different parts of his journey. We get a more extensive look at a stop Paul made in the city of Troas as he met with the church there. And then we look at the beginning of Paul's farewell message to the elders of the church at Ephesus. Well, it's the beginning of this message, which is in verses 18 to 21, that I want to use as a theme for understanding the other things going on in these verses. In verses 18 to 21, Paul gives a brief summary to the Ephesian elders of his ministry among them. And though it's focused on the ministry in Ephesus, I believe this is an accurate summary, really, of Paul's ministry in every city that he visited. Well, the first thing you'll note there that Paul says about his ministry is that it is characterized by the fact that he is serving the Lord. It says that in verse, that's how verse 19 begins. So all that he did in Ephesus, all that he did in every aspect of his life and ministry was always done in service to the Lord. He was not willing to serve the idols of the culture, no matter how much pushback he got from that. It is Jesus Christ who purchased every aspect of his salvation. Jesus Christ, who was his Savior and Lord, he owed his very life and salvation to him, and that is who Paul lived to serve. So all he did as a missionary, all he did as a Christian, was done in service to the Lord. So since being, since being Christ's servant was his identity... That was Paul's identity. That speaks of humility on Paul's part, and Paul mentions that. He knew that he was not smart enough or brave enough to be a missionary, to be a Christian on his own. He had to humble himself before the mighty hand of God. And he admits his weakness as, he's, as he speaks of that, while at the same time relying on the strength of the Lord. We see in verse 19 that he also served with tears. I would venture to say that Paul's tears were connected with those who would not believe the gospel. He was deeply burdened, we know this, for his Jewish brethren. Their unbelief really saddened him greatly. It would also give him great sorrow to see people choosing a mythological idol, a goddess, as, their, as the one they would worship instead of coming to Christ in faith. These are just tragic things that moved him greatly. So he served in humility, in tears. And then Paul speaks of the trials that came upon him through the plots of the Jews. Well, he suffered much of these things from the things that the Jews tried to do against him. In Ephesus, of course, you remember, he was forced to leave the synagogue because of the Jews. But it didn't just happen in Ephesus. I mean, you know that. There were riots that were incited against him in Pisidian Antioch, in Iconium, in Lystra, in Thessalonica, in Corinth. So this was a common aspect of Paul's ministry wherever he went, including Ephesus. But no matter how much he resistance he got from Jews or Gentiles regarding the gospel, he did not shrink back from declaring all that was profitable for the churches. So Paul's commitment to continue to teach and exhort regarding the word of, the, word of the Lord characterized his ministry everywhere he went. So let's look at our first point on your outline then. Paul's service of the Lord highlights the need believers have for much exhortation in the scriptures. The way he served 
highlights the fact that we all need much exhortation. Chapter 20, verse 1 says, After the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and when he had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he left to go to Macedonia. Well, this is what took place just after the major disturbance that was precipitated by Demetrius in regard to the worship of Artemis. Paul did not try to get away while the crowd was looking for him. In fact, if you remember, he was trying to go to the theater where the mob was gathered, but the disciples would not let him go into that mob. We're told, we're told back in chapter 19, verse 21, that under the direction of the Holy Spirit, Paul had already purposed to go to Macedonia from after, after Ephesus. He wanted to encourage the churches in the, in the region of Macedonia, churches that he had already started. So we see here in verse 1 that he left for Macedonia at this time. But before he did that, he called for the disciples in Ephesus and exhorted them. So we see from Paul's service of the Lord that he understood in this next point that believers need much exhortation in the scriptures in the face of widespread idolatry in the culture. We saw clearly in Acts 19 that the worship of Artemis had a stronghold on the people of Ephesus and really all of Asia. This idolatry was just pervasive. And any Christian who held firm to their commitment to Jesus Christ and Savior and Lord was going to stand out as being very different. Well, what could Paul do to help them? We read that he gathered them together so he could exhort them. To exhort means to give encouragement. It's a sec and the, the secondary meaning of the word is to comfort or even to embrace. We actually see this same thing spoken of in verse 2, where Paul gives much exhortation also to the believers in Macedonia. And then in Troas, we see that he spoke with the believers until midnight and then through the, through the night until daybreak, which was truly much exhortation. And then, of course, Paul spoke to the Ephesian elders of how he had taught them everything that would be profitable to them in their faith. Well, the same thing is going on here in verse 1. And when you look around, again, our culture, the idolatrous worship is easy to see. It's almost impossible to get away from it. A large percentage of the population seems to be embracing this idolatry. Then you also have many who just seem to be going along because it's the trendy thing to do, not understanding the depth of the evil. They don't understand the danger involved, but are actually participating in idol worship. Well, in the midst of these pressures, these temptations, we need to be sure we are regularly being exhorted in the Scriptures and letting the Scriptures exhort us. We need to hear, we need to apply, we need to encourage one another to stand firm in the faith. So this encouragement is an important aspect of what it means to really to serve the Lord. This was a part of Paul's service, was to make sure that people were encouraged and helped when they were having to deal with these kind of things in their culture. We also see from these verses that believers need much exhortation in the Scriptures to continue to grow in the faith. Verse 2 and 3, When he had gone through those districts and had given them much exhortation, he came to Greece, and there he spent three months and when a plot was formed against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So as Paul travels through the district in Macedonia, we are told that he gave much exhortation to these various gatherings, various churches. 
He then went to Greece. This is actually a reference to Achaia, where Corinth was located. The Romans named that region Achaia to distinguish it from Macedonia. So he likely spent much of his time in Corinth. And it's commonly believed that it was during this time, this three-month time period, that Paul wrote the letter to the Romans. Well, that helps me really answer a question that I was wondering about. All these references to exhortation, all that he taught the believers, what exactly did he teach them? What was the content of what he taught? Well, we get a good start on that by looking at what Paul said he taught the Ephesians. So if you look over at the end of verse 20 and 21, Paul says, I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul taught them in public gatherings. Paul taught them in, in household gatherings. And we're told that he solemnly testified. So testified of what? Well, he testified of the truth. He testified of the body of Christian truth. He testified of the scriptures. And since this was truth that was revealed by God, he testified of it solemnly, carefully. And then Paul gets even more specific. He says he testified of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So as we look at the content of his exhortation, we start with this. Believers have need of repentance toward God. We think of repentance as being associated with a person becoming a Christian, and that's true. But those of us who have been Christians for a long time are also called to repent. We're to be ongoing repenters. Repentance is an acknowledgment, of course, that we have all sinned. It's an acknowledgment that every sin deserves the wrath and curse of God. And by God's grace, we recognize the guilt of our sin, and we have grief and hatred of our sin. We confess our sin to God. We understand that it's only by His mercy shown to us in Christ that we can be forgiven of that sin. And then we trust Him to help us turn from that sin and purpose to be obedient to the Lord. Well, again, that's required for someone who is coming to the Lord. Paul wanted the Jews to repent from their unbelief and come to faith. Paul wanted the Greeks to repent from their idolatry and come to faith. I mean, if one doesn't recognize how sinful they are, they are never going to see their need for a Savior. But that is not only required for a person to become a Christian, it's also something every single Christian, no matter how long you've been a Christian, continues to apply. Every Christian sins. We all know that. God has changed our heart. We have a desire for and a, to pursue things that are righteous, but we often fail. But thank the Lord, He stays with us. He pursues us. The Holy Spirit convicts us of that sin. We confess it to God. We come to Him for forgiveness and begin again to pursue what is righteous. So we all need continued exhortation to repent. Next, we see that believers have need of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the second thing Paul says that he solemnly testified of as a servant of the Lord as part of his much exhortation, was the need of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith is actively believing, trusting. And that faith has to have an object. 
Sometimes people speak of faith as it's just the idea of being optimistic. You're just kind of, this is just an optimistic person, just filled with faith. But faith has to have something that is the object of the faith. It's not just hanging out there. So this belief or trust, the particular object that we are focused on is the Lord Jesus Christ, and Paul makes that clear. Well, who is the one that, let's think a little bit, and you know this, but just to kind of remind us, who is the Lord Jesus Christ that we focus our faith, our dependence on? Well, Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He took on human flesh and came to earth. He came as the promised Messiah. He came as the Christ, the one who would save his people from their sins. He lived on earth as the one who is fully God and fully man. He perfectly obeyed the law of God in every possible way, through every thought, through every motive, through every word he spoke, through everything that he did, every conversation he had. Jesus Christ was perfectly righteous, perfectly obeyed God's law. But many refused to believe him. They refused to believe that he was who he claimed to be. He was arrested by the Jewish leaders. He was turned over to the Romans to be crucified. And the death he died on the cross, again, was obviously not because of anything he did wrong. He was perfectly righteous. Therefore, he was able to die as a substitute for others because he did not have to die for himself. So he endured the wrath of God for sinners. He was then raised from the dead, confirming that full salvation had been accomplished. That is the one that our faith must fully rest on and lean on. There is salvation in no other name. We, of course, have to have this faith to be saved. But we have need to continue in this faith, especially when we live in a culture dominated by idolatry. You have to be a person of ongoing faith. We can be tempted to put our trust in things or in people that often prove to be unstable, maybe deceptive, untrustworthy. Our faith is not ultimately in a political party, a particular candidate, the economy or our bank accounts, those are things that are important, but they are not primary. We have to daily acknowledge Jesus Christ as our Lord, as our Savior. He is the one that we trust in and look to on an everyday kind of basis. Well, Paul said that repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ were the things he regularly testified of to the Ephesians and to all the churches. Now, there's other things that really speak of the blessings that come as a result of repentance and faith that Christians enjoy. Well, in light of the fact that Paul wrote his letter to the Romans while he was in Corinth, which is part of the passage we're looking at, I want to expand a bit on what Paul's exhortation would have included, things that are expounded on in Romans. Now, one of the major truths emphasized in Romans is this. Believers stand justified before God by grace through faith. We're told in Romans chapter 3 that God in his grace has provided the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. We, just, we have to have a perfect righteousness to be delivered from the eternal condemnation that we deserve. Well, God provides that righteousness to sinners through Jesus Christ. We are told by Paul in, in Romans 3 that we are justified by faith apart from any works of any sort. To be justified is to be considered perfectly righteous before God. 
It means that God has actually credited righteousness to our account. And we receive this by faith. It's not dependent on works in any sense of the word. We're all well aware that we, we do things wrong. That's why repentance is important to remember. But when we remember that we stand before the God justified in the very presence of holy God, we stand justified by faith in Jesus Christ, that is so encouraging even in the midst of knowing of being convicted of sin. You're convicted of sin as one who is already righteous in Christ. That righteousness is not affected by your sin. It's not affected by your lack of good works. It's not, you can't add to that righteousness by being even better. The righteousness is full and complete. And it's the righteousness that we receive, again, by repentance and faith, but we stand justified before God in Christ. That's one of the blessings that's connected with this idea of, of faith. And I think it's a part of the exhortation that we need to hear and remind ourselves of on a regular basis. Another doctrine that Paul speaks of in his letter to the Romans, which I'm sure was included in much exhortation that he gave, is that believers are adopted. Believers are adopted as one of the sons of God. In Romans 8, 14 to 16, he says, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. The adoption of a child, you know, that, that, that we would do in our culture or, 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 or even all, or all around the world, the adoption of a child is an echo of what the God has done for sinners from the foundation of the world. In Ephesians 1.5, we read that God predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. So the fact that anyone is a son of God, and by the way, son of God includes daughters as well. Son of God is meant especially to kind of give credit and glory to the fact that we are sons of God through the son of God. But obviously it includes daughters. So the fact that anyone is a son of God is because God decreed it to be so in eternity past. In eternity past, God chose undeserving people who would be his eternal children. He set his love on them. All that Jesus Christ accomplished as our Savior was accomplished to complete the adoption process. It's through faith in Jesus Christ that we receive God, not only as our Creator, but we receive him as our loving Father. Every time a child is adopted, again, into a family in this world, even if it's among unbelievers who could care less about what the Bible has to say, any time a child is adopted into a family in this world, it's a visual illustration of how God adopts us as his sons and his daughters. Every believer, Paul tells us, is indwelt by the spirit of adoption. There is a realization that our Heavenly Father loves and cares for us. We have a love and affection for the Father that's a response to his love and affection for us. We know as Christians that we are deeply loved. We are watched over. We are cared for because the Spirit himself testifies to our spirit that we are his children. We are his. 
That's another great blessing that we receive by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ that we need to remember regularly as part of what our, as part of what our real identity is as Christians. One final thing I want to point out from Paul's letter to the Romans is this. Believers have the certain hope of glorification. This is, uh, I also want to read uh, just a couple of verses here from Romans 8, 29 and 30. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. So Paul speaks here about how our salvation began by being foreknown by God. All who were foreknown are predestined. Everyone who is predestined is called by God to receive that salvation they've been predestined to receive. Everyone who is called by God in this way will be justified by God, like we spoke of earlier, be made righteous. Everyone who is justified by God, the same people will all be glorified by God. So glorification is the eternal completion of our salvation, and it's guaranteed to every single Christian. The Baptist Catechism says that at the final resurrection, when Christ returns, all believers will be raised up in glory, openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment. Every believer is going to be made perfectly blessed, both in soul and body. Perfectly blessed in soul, perfectly blessed in body. All in the category, in the context of full enjoyment of God to all eternity. Full enjoyment of God to all eternity by people who have been fully and completely transformed, glorified. Every single Christian has this to look forward to. It is a guarantee to every one of us. And that joy is just impossible to even imagine. I mean, we're going to, it's going to continue to increase you will never come to the place in heaven. I don't know this from experience, but I know it from Scripture. You will never come to the place in heaven where you think, we did that 300,000 years ago. We have to do that again? It's never going to get old. Nothing. I mean, fresh joys continually springing from his face. Always to eternity. Every single Christian has that. That's the kind of hope we need to remember. That's part of the much exhortation. That's part of the much exhortation. My battery just said dead meat. You can turn, you can change. Okay. That's part of the much exhortation, I think, that Paul was giving believers. And uh, he knew this was most, most, one of the most important things he needed to do as he served the Lord was to exhort, but also as we serve the Lord, is to receive and understand and apply those exhortations. Now, there's one other aspect of his service to the Lord that we also need to take note of. So our second main point is this. Paul's service to the Lord highlights the need believers have for community with other Christians. So because of more threats from the Jews while he was in Corinth, Paul had to change his plans and travel through Macedonia. That was in verses 4 through 6. 
And if you just glance at those verses, there are seven men that are listed there who are accompanying Paul at certain parts of his journey. Uh, one is uh, Sopater of Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus of Thessalonica, Gaius of Derby, Tychicus, Trophimus of Asia. Timothy is also mentioned who had been with him uh, at various times since the beginning of the second missionary journey. Well, these, all these men are apparently mentioned because they are representatives of some of the churches that contributed to the offering that Paul was taking up to take to the Jerusalem church. Now, we're also, we are also told that Luke actually joined up with Paul again. That's where the pronouns begin to become plural, uh, we and us. So Luke is part of, the, part of the, the, the group as well. Well, then after spending seven days in Troas, which we'll get to back to in a moment, the journey continued in verses 13 to 17. And Luke gives some details about the journey. Paul decided to walk to Asos instead of taking the ship with the others. We don't know why, but that's what he did. They then briefly stopped at a couple islands before landing in Miletus, where Paul spoke with the, or called the uh, elders of Ephesus to come and meet with him, and he spoke to them there. And then Luke reminds us that Paul very much wants to get to Jerusalem uh, by Pentecost. Well, all of this, this aspect of Paul's service to the Lord, and this is still Paul serving the Lord, that's still the same context here. This aspect of his service to the Lord shows us this. There is a need for local churches to cooperate in ministry with other local churches. Paul recognized that it was very important for the Gentile churches to work together to help the Jerusalem church. He led them to work together to raise an offering for those in need in the Jerusalem church. And we have seen all through Paul's journeys that he regularly focused on establishing and strengthening local churches. But here we see that he wanted the churches to cooperate together as well. It's really just, I just think it's just, just such a neat insight uh, or th that Luke gives us of these six, seven men all going with Paul, all representing various churches that had been started by Paul at different times. And now these men are all working together with Paul as representatives of those local churches. It's just really such a cool picture. Now, each of those churches was autonomous, but they also had concern for other churches as well. Now, this truth really is the reason, for example, that we cooperate with other churches in the Greater Dayton Association of Baptist Churches. That's why we do that. This is the reason that I like to participate in the National Day of Prayer with other churches in our area here the reason I serve on the personnel committee uh, for the Dayton Association. It's the reason I decided to, to go ahead and help the Miami Valley Church of the Deaf in hearing to ordain their new pastor. It's the reason that we are part of the Southern Baptist denomination. Uh, there is just so much more that churches can do together than any of us can do by ourselves, especially in the area of missions. And sometimes there's challenges that we have to work through together. We're going to seek to address some of those challenges in our denomination as Southern Baptists meet next week, along with several four of us from our church that will be there in Anaheim, California. But we have a biblical directive to not only just focus on our particular local church, that's important, but we also are supposed to cooperate in various ways with other local churches. And we get a, we get a picture of that here in the way Paul served the Lord. 
Another aspect of the need for community with other Christians is illustrated in verses 7 to 12. So let me read those for you again from Acts 20. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together. And there was a young man named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep as Paul kept on talking. He was overcome by sleep and fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. But Paul went down and fell upon him, and after embracing him, he said, Do not be troubled, for his life is in him. When he had, brought, when he had gone back up and had broken the bread and eaten, he talked with them a long while until daybreak and then left. They took away the boy alive and were greatly comforted. So Paul and the others ended up staying in Troas for seven days. And since he had such a short time with this church, Paul made the most of it. He definitely gave much exhortation to these believers, especially that Sunday, that particular first day of the week. And he gave so much exhortation that you've seen that around midnight, a young man who was just sitting in the windowsill, the open window, he fell out of the window. Um, they rushed upon him, found out he was dead. Paul fell on him, and you get the picture here just much like Elijah and Elijah did uh, in the Old Testament when they actually, God used them to actually bring someone to life who was dead. Well, Paul did the same thing. Interesting to note that the young man's name, Eutychus, means good fortune. As you can tell, Luke remembered that, and so that's why he gives us his name. Well, the Lord blessed this young man through Paul by raising him from the dead. So they rejoiced. Paul went back to teaching, and again, he continued talking until daybreak. I mean, it's quite a service. Well, this leads us to another example of believers' need for community, and that's this. There is a need for corporate worship on the first day of the week. A need for corporate worship on the first day of the week. Verse 7 Luke makes it clear, he makes this point to tell us that this gathering of the church at Troas took place on the first day of the week. This is the first mention in the book of Acts of the church gathering for worship on the first day of the week. That doesn't mean they didn't do it other times. This is just the first time Luke mentioned it to us. Well, obviously, and you just look the way calendars are set up, the first day of the week is Sunday. Well, the Sabbath day, which was the regular day for worship for the Jews, was on Saturday, as you know. The move to Sunday from Saturday to worship is because our Savior was resurrected on the first day of the week. So every Sunday then when we meet for worship, every Sunday, not just Easter Sunday, every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Every Sunday is a reminder that we serve a risen Savior every single Sunday. That's why we worship on the first day of the week. And it's a truth that the Lord wants us to remember regularly because we're supposed to worship regularly on the first day of the week. When they gathered, they broke bread. This is a reference to the taking of the Lord's Supper together. And in the early church, the taking of the Lord's Supper was often connected with a meal. And, of course, at this particular worship service, there was much focus on the sharing and hearing of the word of the Lord since Paul had to leave the next day. It's just so encouraging, again, to me to remember that since the first century, believers have been gathering for worship on the first day of the week in places all over the world. It's happening this weekend. It'll happen next weekend. It happened last weekend. It happened 50 years ago. It happened 500 years ago. It happened 1,000 years ago. It's continued to happen. Believers gathering for worship on the first day of the week all over the world. 
our worship and our fellowship together. It's just it's such a vital part of our Christian life. It's an aspect of our service to the Lord. But it's also an important as- part of our service to one another. Because even as we worship, we're singing to the Lord. I don't know about you, though, but I sing by myself. But I'd much rather sing with you guys. It's just a different it's just different. And so, so we need that encouragement. We actually serve one another as we sing together with one another to the Lord. So it's important that we do this, that we have these regular times of, of worship. That's one of the most important acts of service that we are given. And again, Paul illustrates that for us in this passage as well. Lord, we do want to thank you for your word. We thank you for giving us insight into things that happened in the early church, the way they responded, the way Paul's ministry was, and just uh, the things that they struggled with that were so hard for them, some things that are similar in our, in, our, in our day. And the answer is the same, that we need to have much exhortation and remind ourselves, kind of exhort ourselves, including exhorting ourselves often with what the truths of the Scripture are to stand firm. Lord, help us to be people who continue to repent on a daily basis. We know we all need that. Help us to continue to be people of faith who have a strong faith in you on a daily basis. Remind us regularly of the fact that we stand justified before you in Christ, fully righteous. Remind us that we are your adopted sons and daughters. We belong to you in your family, in your very household. You chose us before the foundation of the world to be your children and remind us of the fact that we will be glorified in eternity, that the salvation you've begun in us, you will certainly complete. Lord, remind us of these things. We need these exhortations when we're in a time where so many around us are engaging in idolatrous worship and would do their best to try to get us involved. Lord, help us to stand firm. Help us to be able to stand firm on the things that we know are true. Thank you for the faith that you've given us. If you're one who's never put your faith in Jesus Christ, a prayer like this would be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I am sinful. I realize that I do not measure up to what you require of me as your creation. But I know that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, so I want to receive Jesus Christ as my Savior. I want to commit my life to Jesus Christ as the Lord of my life. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment, you can make a note on the tear-off, or those who are watching online can reach out to us through the website. It is in the name of...